Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to The Waiting Room Revolution. Today we are talking with Mahogany Hines. She is a registered nurse who works as a palliative pain and symptom management consultant in the Niagara area. She's won awards from the RNAO, which is the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Nursing Now for Leadership in Nursing. So welcome to the podcast, Mahogany. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So Mahogany, um, for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about what your current role is and, and your, your work in the system? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So I am a palliative pain and symptom management consultant. Uh, so my background is I'm a registered nurse and I actually came into nursing with the sole intention to work in hospice palliative care. Um, so I've worked only in palliative care. That is my pure uh, expertise. That's where I've worked my whole career. So, and I started uh, working bedside as a hospice nurse, and then I worked at a couple of hospices, and then I graduated to my PPSMC role. And in my PPSMC role, um, there is about 30, there's between 34 to 38 of us in the province, uh, depending on if those positions have been filled. Uh, and I'm part of the Palliative Care Consultants Network. Um, and what we are is we're secondary level experts in palliative care. And we we do, each of us does like a role a little bit differently. Um, but in my area, so across the Niagara region, I have kind of a split role. So half of my job is education. And then the other half of my job is uh, consultation. So I work predominantly with uh, long-term care. So I work with all 32 long-term care homes throughout the Niagara region. I'm a free resource for them. Um, and basically what I do is I my job is to build capacity. So uh, my role is essentially to work myself out of a role. <laughs> That's my hope, right? Is uh, to build enough capacity that at some point they essentially won't need me or that they'll only need me for really complex cases of uh, palliative pain or symptom management. So I work really closely with the healthcare providers. Um, and I, I don't take over care, but I work collaboratively with them um, in building those capacity, uh, having some of those serious illness conversations, the goals of care conversations, uh, talking about advanced care planning, and things like that. So that's really kind of what I do in a nutshell. And then a lot of my job is actually facilitating linkages. So it's just like knowing what resources are available in palliative care. So if they need additional supports or expertise, and it's really implementing a holistic approach. I, I would love to know, like, why, what made you fall in love with palliative care? Like, why was this the thing that you knew you wanted to do right from the start? So that's a, I wish it was an easy answer. <laughs> So um, it's really interesting because my first uh, diploma was actually in fashion design. So I am a graduate of fashion techniques and design. Um, and that really didn't light my fire. It, it didn't really spark the passion in me. And I traveled overseas for a couple of years. And when I was living overseas in New Zealand, um, I was a bartender. <laughs> and one of my regular uh customers came in and I developed a really good rapport with her uh, and her mother had had a fall in a long-term care institution and she had uh, fractured her hip and um, the the center didn't have enough 
staff to have somebody come in and, you know, keep reminding her, because as we know, people um, that have a dementia diagnosis often don't remember that they've had a fracture and they keep trying to get up. So uh, what had happened was she'd been told either they were going to have to restrain her or um, they could hire somebody to come in. She could hire somebody to come in and kind of like spend some time with her and kind of remind her. And I was talking to her saying, I'd love to go back to school. I didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, And one of my other regular customers at the time was a cruise ship nurse. And she's like, oh, you'd be a really good nurse. And I wholeheartedly laughed in her face and I was like no way I didn't take math I didn't take science in high school like oh I don't think so and she was like honestly I think it's something you should consider because you have a really good personality for it um so I ended up doing that for a few months and I actually spent a great deal of time advocating for her and I spent a lot of time just getting to know her and seeing kind of the healthcare system as it was working just kind of from an outsider lens, which was really interesting to me. And I was like, I think I could do this. Um, And then I came home and I applied to school and I got rejected because I didn't take math and science in high school. So I had to take pre-health. So I took a pre-health course and I was actually working as um, like a care provider in the community. And I did that all through nursing school after I did get accepted. And um, as I was caring for people in the community, it was always one of uh, the PSWs that I worked with was like, you know that we're doing palliative care here, right? And I was like, oh, I think I like that. (laughs) And then as I was learning what nursing was, um, all of the core tenets of palliative care really were there, right? So like the essence of what really good nursing practices that were taught it's supposed to be was palliative care. It's that holistic, integrative, you know, not just the person, but whoever they identify as family. Um, it's that wraparound care that's really person-centered, and they're and they're the one that's guiding it. And I was like, that is my jam. Uh, I had never experienced somebody die before. <laughs> I had never had a family member that I had. I'd never gone to a funeral. Um, but I was like, I'm going to do palliative care. And um, in my second year of nursing, I was afforded the opportunity to care some, for somebody who was imminently dying. And I cared for them. And I spent a great deal of time trying to track down their family and get their family to come in to say their goodbyes. And they wouldn't come in for whatever reason. And I struggled with that. I really like, I really grappled with that and my own kind of feelings towards that. But when I was there, it was actually also the first time I had ever drawn up morphine to give someone. So I don't know if you remember the first time you ever drew up a, 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 an opioid. But it took me quite a while. And, you know, my nursing preceptor was standing behind me and I was trying to draw it up and I kept getting bubbles in it. And, and you know, I was like shaking and I was nervous. And I finally went into the room and I like cleaned off the sub-Q set and I looked at him. And then I looked at my preceptor and I was like, something's not right. And he had died. And I was like, I could still hear the oxygen machine pumping away, but I was like, he's no longer here. And she afforded me the opportunity to actually clean the body, to notify the family, to go through that process. And I knew instantly once I had done that, that this was exactly where I was supposed to be. And I've never looked back. (laughs) I've never looked back. I love it. I love what I do. I'm so, so fortunate. Um, I honestly think it chose me. I don't think that I had a whole lot of say in the the matter. Uh, I just kind of 
steered the ship and this is where I've ended up. And you've just won an award for that passion you have in nursing as well. So you've come a long way, Mahogany. (laughs) And there's still so far to go. (laughs) Honestly, there's still so far to go. There's so much still to learn. What do you find is the hardest part about your educator's role? So you, you educate other healthcare providers, PSW, so personal support workers and uh, other nurses to learn more about palliative care. What's, what's the, well, how about I ask you, what's the biggest misconception people have about palliative care and what do you find is the hardest part of your teaching role? I think that's a really, really good question. I think it's, I have to answer it in kind of two parts. So the first part um, is some of the most difficult or misconceptions that I think I hear most are what palliative care is and what it is not, right? So more often than not, I hear um, healthcare providers saying like, oh, now the patient's palliative And, and you can't see me, but I'm air quoting it. Because as we know, people aren't palliative. The care in which they receive is. People are people first, foremost, always, period, full stop. They're people, right? They're not defined by uh, the interventions or the approaches that we, we tend to them with. And kind of once I can wrap their heads around the fact that, you know, palliative care can start much, much sooner than it often does. It doesn't just start uh, when somebody is actively dying, <laughs> that it can start way, way, way earlier, uh, ideally at the time of a life-limiting diagnosis. Just watching those light bulbs go on, is it, it's honestly beautiful. It's beautiful to just see them go, oh, people aren't palliative. And oh, we could be doing this so much sooner, especially, you know, my colleagues that work in long-term care. I'm like, I always try and get them to reflect, like, would you be surprised if the person died in the next 12 months? Well, I want you to consider everybody in your care. I want you to consider everybody that you care for and how many life-limiting diagnoses they have. How many of you have one person that has one life-limiting diagnosis that comes into long-term care? And I find that majority of them can't even identify one person that only has one life-limiting illness. Oftentimes, they have many. Right. So would they benefit from palliative approach? Yes. And they're like, oh, my goodness, I could be doing this for all my patients. <laughs> and, and it's really beautiful to see them trying to implement that. The second part of your question um, is much trickier is the implementation piece. So how do we implement that and translate it into practice? Um, And I think that there's multiple levels that we need to work at. Uh, one of the biggest barriers that we often see, I think, is the healthcare system itself. Right. So uh, even the way that we often like through home and community care, we might even define what palliative care is. It's like those last three to six months of life where people actually can have access to those supports or it's limited. And that in and of itself creates a barrier because we're trying to teach them much more upstream. And then they try upstream and they're like, oh, they don't qualify. (laughs) Which can make things really difficult because working against the system uh, it, it creates this moral distress. And I, I think we see a lot of moral distress happening in healthcare providers, especially now in the time of COVID. Uh, you know, like they know what they need to be doing, but sometimes the resources are just not there. The supports aren't there. You can only, there's only 24 hours in a day and there's only so much care you can physically and actively give. Mahogany, I'm going to put you, this is a hard one. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay, because a lot of us talk about, um, 
you know, a palliative approach and that it, it needs to be done um, earlier upstream and we should start it um, earlier. But what is it? So people have a hard time. They get, they say, okay, philosophically, that makes a lot of sense. But how do you um, educate people what that actually looks like upstream? If we say it should be upstream, we say it should be early, what is it we're expecting them to do? And I think uh, you've touched on it in your keys before. So so I've been listening to your podcast. I, I've been educating myself over the last couple of weeks to make sure uh, that that we're all like speaking the same language. And I think one of the big ones is that zoom out piece, right? So it's looking at the bigger picture, but it's also starting conversations earlier, right? Those it's really only need to be conversations. They need to be identifying who your substitute decision maker is and not not putting them in the spot where they have to choose what what they want for you to have happen, but making sure that they can speak on your behalf should you not be able to do so for yourself. And like, those are huge pieces that if somebody knows, as somebody who sat at the bedside of a loved one and not known what those decisions are that they would make for themselves, I would never wish it upon anybody else. And it's actually a really simple conversation. Sometimes those conversations can be really easily orchestrated by watching TV and going, see how they had CPR on TV and they popped right back up? That doesn't normally happen, right? Typically people don't, you know, pop right back up right after CPR without any pain and without any deficits. So in those cases, I think the it is having the conversations early and and kind of starting to explore and dive in and unpack what that illness journey could look like, what they want it to look like, and how do they want us to support them through it, right? So it's not about us guiding the way. It's about them telling us, what do you want it to look like? And how do we facilitate that? How do we help you move along that journey in the most comfortable way way possible? Okay, so you mentioned you listen to the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I love it. I I am so happy that people are talking about palliative care um, and destigmatizing and demystifying some of the pieces that I think it doesn't have to be scary and it can actually be really beautiful in creating this human experience where we support one another and we have these open dialogue conversations with the people that we love the most. And 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 I love that like I I you've had so many amazing guests as well. Um that I really look up to and that are as, as very inspiring. So I, I I think it's a really beautiful amazing opportunity to start talking about what we get to do and what we get to be privy to. We get to be the witness. We get to bear witness to such amazing moments. And no, they're not all perfect, but they're all going to happen unique. And even though we may see the same kind of situation happen multiple times, it looks so different every single time we experience it, right? We think we know what's going on and then the rug comes out from underneath us. I think we, we work in the gray area and black and white doesn't really exist in palliative care in my experience. We think we know what's going on and then something changes and we're like, okay, where do we go from here? How do we start again? I have a question for you. Do you ever feel like, you know, the reaction from people, if we didn't use the word palliative care label, 
we might um, get farther because a lot of our podcast was using metaphors that we could use upstream that didn't scare people. And I think when we, I wonder what your thoughts are of when we use the word palliative care, if it, it automatically shuts down the conversation. Yeah, and I think we hear this a lot. I, I, I really appreciate that question because I think we've been hearing it a lot, especially in the last few years, you know, uh, palliative care and end-of-life care have kind of come to the forefront, finally, um, in our healthcare system, and people want to talk about it a little bit more. I think from my personal perspective, I, I tend to lean away from calling it something else, calling it supportive care. I mean, all care should be supportive, I think. Um, and I think it kind of waters down the wonder of what it actually can be. I think the opportunities that we have are to continue to build and support those conversations to encourage people that it doesn't have to be scary. And sure, there are parts that are scary. Of course, the unknown is always scary to us as human beings. Um, but I think there's, there's a really big movement towards like a death positive movement where people are starting to, to bring it back to the grassroots. I think, you know, it's inevitable death and taxes, right? <laughs> the things that we always say, death and taxes, but there are also things that we're not supposed to talk about, right? So like politics, gender, um, religion, death, I think falls within that, um, money, all of those things that we're not supposed to talk about, I, I always kind of want to challenge that because if we don't have a conversation about it, how do we know how we feel? How do we know how we truly feel if we never give ourselves the opportunity to explore it and support one another in those uncomfortable spaces, those liminal spaces that we exist within that are uncomfortable? A huge part of palliative care is leaning into discomfort. Yeah, it's hard. Watching somebody die is hard. Dying can be hard. And it's our responsibility to be able to show up and go, it's okay that it's hard. Keep going, right? We're here for you. And this is what we're here to do as supportive care is to support people through that process. We all know we're going to die, whether we want to admit it or not, right? (laughs) It's not fame, right? We're not going to live forever. (laughs) But, But if we do, like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what happens on the other side. And I, I think we get to see glimpses into that. We, we care for people that, you know, pierce the veil, so to speak. And I, I don't know what happens on the other side. And I think sometimes there's a comfort in knowing that perhaps we're going to see those people again and those animals again and those pets, right? So I, I, I think it, we can call it whatever we want. Ultimately, it's going to be the same thing. You know, you can call a rose by any other name, still a rose. Uh, in the last session we just did, someone asked, you know, should we call this supportive care or should it be called palliative care? And of course, this is an age old question. But for us, it was about this is, seems like an, an urgent crisis message we have to get out to people. And so how are we going to package that so that people want to pick this up. My sister said to me when I told her, um, you know, we're going to write a book called What to Expect When You're Dying. It's the, it is the sister book to What to Expect When You're Expecting for Pregnant Women. Um, And my sister said to me, I would never in a million years, nor would anyone I know pick up such a book. And so we, we were a little bit between a rock and a hard place because we agree we don't want to sugarcoat these terms. But we also want to get it out there. 
So that was the, that's the tension that always exists. I appreciate that. And, and I can appreciate your sister's comment. I, I, I mean, I know I have family members that are in the same position um, where they would, they're like, no, I mean, I'm also the person that's at the table at Easter saying like, Hey, (laughs) Jesus rose again. I'm not sure that you're going to let's have a conversation. about it. (laughs) Like, what does that look like? And as somebody, so, and I mentioned this earlier, so my mother had a heart attack when she was 52 and I was there and I was the one that performed CPR on my mother. And I remember sitting at the bedside going, okay, she's intubated. She's in an induced coma. What if she doesn't wake up or what if she has major deficits? Is this living for her? Is this what she would want for herself? And we had never had those conversations. And fortunately, she did wake up. And I mean, she does have some deficits because of it, naturally. Um, But that being said, I would never put somebody into the position uh, where they have to do that, if I can help it. Any opportunity to have that conversation they can be hard. I, I think the tricky part is, is, is that balance between uh, the, the palatable and the reality. Uh, and I think, I, and I do think that there is actually an upswing in, in our favor, I guess, in that direction. Because I do think that there is a bit more of an appetite to have some of these conversations. I think it's unfortunate that many of the people that are willing to have the conversations are because they've been in similar situations to myself. Um, and they're trying to, you know, proactively. I, I think, I think that's that's the piece of public health as well. I think that if we took a, a public health approach to having conversations about palliative care, integrating it at kind of all levels of care, not that it's just end of life, you know, at the end it tacked on to a chronicity uh, component in nursing school. But like, why aren't we talking about palliative care approach across the continuum? right? People don't just die when they're elderly. They die at varying stages of life. So why aren't we having those conversations, even in our own healthcare system, in our education system, so much earlier? Mahogany, tell us a little bit more about the formal training of a nurse. Like, What kind of formal exposure and training do nurses get uh, in Canada around palliative care or caring for people in this open, honest way um, through a progressive life-limiting illness? So I have to admit from my own experience, it typically is limited unless you're actively seeking it out yourself. So as somebody who wanted to do palliative care all through my nursing career, I was constantly chomping at the bit asking like, when are we going to talk about palliative care? Like, is this a palliative care approach here? Is this a palliative care approach here? And um, it was limited. So in my experience, it was occasionally like you would do a long-term care rotation. So absolutely, there's opportunity to integrate it. But depending on who's training you, if they don't implement a palliative care approach, you might not ever experience that, um, which is, I think, really common. And unless you're seeking out opportunities at like a hospice where it's deeply embedded into the structure of the way that we we care for people, or even like the community uh, palliative care programs, which tend to be really wonderful tools for teaching new nurses and new healthcare providers 
what it looks like and, and what it looks like in practice and also how to MacGyver things out of very limited resources. Um, honestly, props to our community nurses and DSWs. They do amazing, amazing things. Um, but besides that, there's very, very limited interaction unless you're actively seeking it or asking for it. Uh, had I not told my, my uh, preceptor in second year that I wanted to work in palliative care, she wouldn't have given me the patient who was actively dying. But she's like, because you want this and because you're asking for it <laughs> and you want that experience, I think you're ready to be able to do this and I can support you in that. But again, when you think about it, um, that the definition of your nursing preceptor was for you to care for someone at the very, very end of life was the definition of palliative care exposure. And when you think about it, nurses get trained in all sorts of settings, whether it's an internal medicine ward, a surgical ward, a gynae ward, a long-term care facility. These are not serendipitous rotations. These are core rotations for nurses. Uh, people who are on those floors, um, in those wards, do require a palliative approach, but the nurses won't look through that lens unless their supervisors say, we're going to care for this person through the lens of a palliative approach. It's not chronic disease management. These are people with progressive life-limiting illnesses, and we're going to care for them accordingly. In long-term care, the average life expectancy is 18 months. It's like a long-term hospice. So really, again, it's... it's um, how do we expect nurses to be able to integrate and operationalize an early palliative approach if we don't formally call that out in their um, formative training? Yes. <laughs> right? And, and those are the pieces, I think, there are so many opportunities for growth. And that's the one thing that I'm taking away from the pandemic is the one, and I don't even want to call it a silver lining because there's been so much loss, but it's the one thing where we've illuminated the fractures in our system that healthcare providers knew existed. We've been singing it from the rooftops for decades, um, and it's illuminated those fractures, and we know that they're there, but now everybody else is starting to see oh my goodness, these are fractures in our system. These are breaks. This is where it's broken. These are gaps. And whenever there is a gap, there's people falling between it. So there's opportunity for us to grow and invest in that upstream approach, right? Invest in it as part of a public health initiative. We, When we think of public health, more often than not, much like we think of hospices, we think of a place. We think of like, public health, as opposed to the philosophy of public health, which is that upstream approach. How do we fix the system so that way we're not doing Band-Aid solutions at the, at, at the 11th hour? And we so often do. Yeah. And if I were to ask that as a question, I would say, like, what do you, because you talk a lot about your, a big part of your role is educating providers, particularly nurses in long-term care homes or PSWs, personal support workers. So our, this podcast was about targeting patients and families on some level and the public to, to, as Sammy said, you know, suck out this palliative care approach without, you know, getting stuck with the, uh, with barriers to language. So I'm wondering, what do you think of this approach? Like it's another target audience to, to get on board. 
I think it's amazing. And it, I think it, it, it puts them back in the driver's seat, which is so often, I think so many people come into a healthcare system and they feel powerless. There's, there's, um, a loss of autonomy. There's so many losses that people experience when coming into the healthcare system as a patient or as a family and not knowing how to navigate through. And you're equipping them, as you've said in some of your other podcasts, with this map, right? It's literally a step-by-step map of how you can get what you need from optimize this system. So that way it's working for you as it's intentionally meant to do. (laughs) We've heard a lot from physicians and even some patients, but we haven't heard a lot about the nursing perspective. And so I'm curious what you feel is the unique contribution of nurses um, in the system and in this idea of supporting patients and families who face serious illness. If you listen to the voices that are talking about palliative care, that are talking about health equity, um, you're rarely going to hear nurses talking. Uh, unfortunately, it's not that you're not hearing them talking. It's not that they're not doing the work. It's that they're often not invited to many of the tables. So, or they're invited to the tables and they have a script. So (laughs) they're not always given the opportunity to speak to their experience. uh, And that might be come from places of fear of liability. Um, But it, it, it can be tricky because we don't necessarily get the opportunities to come to those tables and speak our truths because sometimes our truths are not pretty. And I think the, the beautiful role of nursing is not only that we often do bedside. So I, I do, I've been doing both actually through the pandemic. I've uh, been partially redeployed and I've been covering where I can in the hospice bedside as well. So I know not only, you know, do like preach palliative care. I also practice what I preach. I have to, um, or I preach what I practice, I guess, uh, the way to do it. But the, the nurses' voices are so unique in the sense that we spend a great deal of time at the bedside, and we spend a great deal of time with the families. And working with the families and working with the patients um, or residents or what whatever you call them, clients, <laughs> what have you. Uh, and we get to experience these really beautiful moments when it all clicks together. So there are these moments where everything just kind of falls into place. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen for extended periods necessarily, but there are moments where we see everything kind of come together. You get to see the essence of what palliative care really is and can be. And I think that gives us hope. It gives us as healthcare providers hope that we can contribute in ways, we can support in ways, and we can continue to watch the growth of palliative care evolve because as we know our healthcare system is always in a state of flux it's constantly changing knowledge comes out you know every single day we get new knowledge and new information new best practices Um, but nurses are the ones that have to implement that and I think nurses have a really great opportunity to be amazing advocates because we get to kind of border that line. We spend such a great deal of time with our patients as well as the families. And we get to see the ripple effect that it has on those families throughout the process. Um, And it's not just their given family, it's their chosen family as well. But also we experience loss and grief. I think that's the other piece that sometimes is forgotten. Um, And we're, we're seeing it, really amplified through the pandemic in the sense that 
even the way that we know palliative care is supposed to be applied and approached, there are limitations to it right now. You know, like we can't have 35 people in a room anymore uh, while somebody is dying. We, we can't be encouraging them to climb into bed with their loved one and hug them and kiss them and hold them and have those intimate moments because of safety, right? We're, we have PPE, people can't see us smile right? We have to smile with our eyes. We're getting really good at it. But <laughs> there, there are so many opportunities for us to continue to grow. And I think nurses have this really unique lens that we get to look through and experience it through. But it also gives us a really great opportunity for advocacy, because a huge part of what our job is, is to advocate for those within our care. I, I have a question for you. I know on... Um... You've, you've talked a little bit on, on your blog, your social media, about um, some losses that you've had, um, people close to you. And I guess I'm just wondering if you feel comfortable just talking about what is that like having someone in your family face a serious illness when you yourself has, have palliative care expertise? Um, is that experience different than what you sort of see for your clients? Yes and no. So the reality of it is different because it's very, very intimate. Um, but no, not in the trajectories because I still ran into the same walls. <laughs> I still had family members saying like, you know, uh, so when my grandmother was dying, my grandmother died last year and my granny was like, one of my people. She is my person. I love my grandma so much. And um my grandfather and her, uh, this past Mother's Day, they would have had 67 years together, right? <laughs> and he used to go in twice a day to see her every single day. Every single day she was in long-term care, he went in. And um, when she was dying, so she started to transition, I'd get the calls, right? My grandpa would call me and he'd be like, this is happening. What do you think is, like, what do I do? Because he's her substitute decision maker. Well, my grandpa has a mild dementia, so, and he doesn't work in healthcare. <laughs> and so they used a lot of medical jargon for him. And he's like, I don't know what they mean. Like they started this med and it sounded like this. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> like, let's walk through it. Right. So like, let's walk through what do we expect is going to happen? How often are you seeing changes? Um, I always like to use the tool, like if you're seeing changes month by month, typically they probably have months left. If they're seeing changes week by week, typically there's weeks left. How many weeks, how many days, how many hours? I don't know. I know time is short. What are the things we need to do? What are the things we need to focus on? And when my grandma was dying um, last year, they were actually in like kind of the midst of going into outbreak in her long-term care home. So it was really difficult because we were trying to figure out how do we get the people that need to see her in. Uh, it was also difficult in the sense that my grandma had uh, vascular dementia, really severe vascular dementia. She no longer was speaking um, and she hadn't spoken for years, several years, um, but she could still laugh. Uh, and I actually have a beautiful video of her still laughing. Um, and I have a a beautiful video of her like moaning in kind of those last few days because I was like, I know I need to capture this because I will forget what her voice sounds like. Um, and those were like little moments that I was able to kind of capture. And when my grandfather was there, I could capture those moments where he's holding her hand or he's just, you know, present for her. 
And for me, I cherish those moments. Through the process, I also drew my grandmother. So I, uh, when she was deemed palliative, and I'm air quoting it because she was very imminently end of life, <laughs> um, I drew her every day I went to see her. So I, I drew her because I couldn't get as close as I wanted to. I couldn't be as intimate in the care that I wanted to be because I was wearing PPE and I, I couldn't climb into bed with her because of protocols. And um, so I found other ways. So I tried to get as inventive as possible and still stay as connected as possible. It was challenging because I think we have this mentality of what a good death looks like. And it can look so different for everyone. And I think we struggled because we didn't know if my grandma would want us there when she died. And I had this inkling that she actually didn't want us to be there and be present because it would be so overwhelming for so many in my family. So I went to see her in the afternoon that she ended up dying. And I, to- I went to see my grandfather right after. Um, and I let him know. And he's like, uh, I'm going to wait to go t- till tomorrow. And I was like, are you sure? Like, she, she's very poor. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I think there's a good possibility she might go without you there. Are you okay with that? And he was okay with it. The hard part was when she died. So I, I received the first phone call. And then I called my grandfather. And I called my aunt. And I called my mother. And telling your mother that her mother has died is an experience <laughs> um, that I don't know how to fully articulate. Uh, but in that moment, I knew that I could provide comfort and and it was comforting to me to know that they had trusted me so much to support that process. Mahogany, thank you for sharing that story. And I'm very sorry for your loss. If it's okay, I have one final question that we like to end our interviews on. From all your experiences, what advice do you have for patients and families to have a better illness experience? Ah, that's a really good question. I think the biggest thing is, is not be scared to to talk to your loved ones. They're your loved ones. They're the people that you care about. They're the people you trust most. They're the people who know you. Um, talk to them. Start those conversations. You know, like one of the ones is like, don't replace the goldfish, right? If a goldfish starts doing the backstroke, don't replace it. Have that opportunity. Have that conversation with your children. It's a lot easier to have that conversation about a goldfish than it might be to have about, you know, the massive losses that are happening in the world right now or a loved one that they know really well or a friend or a family member. Um, But I would encourage you to, like, challenge yourself to try and start it and trust that like find those safe spaces, find those soft landing spaces, the the places where you can um, decompress when you do have those hard times. Because oftentimes if you're going through it, you're not going through it alone. There are many people that want to support you and help you through the process. Um, sometimes it's just reaching out and actually asking uh, or just letting somebody know, you know, I'm not doing so well today. I'm having a hard day right? And can I sit with you? Can I be present for you? I think presence is one of the biggest things that we we long for, especially right now in the time of COVID. Uh, we long for intimacy. We long for touch. We long for that love and compassion. Um, and be kind to one another through the process, right? Like we're all going to say sometimes we 
exchange one foot for the other in our mouths, um, it's okay. You're allowed to say the wrong things as long as you come back and you try again, you know, work together through the process. But I think starting having those conversations as early as possible um, when you're still well enough to do it. Mahogany, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking time and joining us. Your passion is palpable. It's, um, you know, 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. Uh, the rest of us are feeling tired. And Mahogany, you seem like you have more energy than I have on a Monday morning. <laughs> it, it's really easy to talk about what we love, though. Honestly, like, it's such a privilege to do what we get to do. And um, I'm just so grateful for all the opportunities to continue to talk and learn and grow with people. That's the best part of it, about being alive is getting to know people and getting to hear their experience and their story and they share it with me and they get to live on through me. I think we live on through everybody that we touch. So I'm just very, very honored. I'm very, very honored. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, WaitingRoomRevolution.com, to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McNoah. Our theme music is made whole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.